Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called You Must Be On Your Guard, 10 Warning Signs That Religion Has Become Evil. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 15, 2009. At the end of his thousand-page history of the Crusades, called God's War, Christopher Tymon warns of the dangers of sentimentality and naivete about religion. He writes, It's a fond myth of the religious that piety excludes greed, coercion, conformity, and lack of reflection, that it is freestanding. No, the language of transcendence should not distract or dupe. Tyreman's book is about the Crusades, when genocide and forced conversions, butchery and baptisms were all construed as works of God. The church not only justified and sanctified the Crusades, it even canonized them as meritorious deeds that earned one remission of sins and eternal salvation. Christopher Tyreman's warnings is as applicable to today as it was to medieval Europe. Even in Jesus' own day and among his closest followers, religion could turn toxic. I thought about what Tyreman calls the fond myth when I sent my daughter to college this fall and emailed a friend about churches that she might attend. He responded with a few suggestions and then included the following warning. There's one church your daughter should avoid. It is cultic and its members work very hard to get unsuspecting college students to come. Then they love bomb them and they become members and then they distance themselves from their family and other believers. It is hardcore, legalistic and authoritarian but people get sucked in because the people are very hospitable. I went there for a long time growing up, and even today we get shunned by members because we left. At least four times in the gospel this week, Jesus warns his followers, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and deceive many. You must be on your guard. Mark chapter 13. These false prophets and false Christs would, if possible, deceive even his most intimate associates, says Jesus. Examples of religion gone bad haunt the Gospels. Jesus' disciples jockeyed for greatness and glory. They wanted to exterminate a Samaritan village. They tried to prevent children from coming to Jesus. They objected to an anonymous healer who was not part of their inner circle. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, they defended him with the violence of the sword. In the name of God's love, Christians have slaughtered Muslims in the Crusades, Jews in the Holocaust, Native Americans, 
and certainly each other in the Thirty Years' War. We've humiliated and exploited slaves, women, and gays. Here in America, we've aligned the gospel with nationalistic and political ideologies of both the conservative right and the liberal left. All of this, mind you, in the name of Jesus. Some critics vilify Christianity as the worst of all offenders. But on this point, I'd make two observations. First, religious violence knows no boundaries and plays no favorites, either regarding perpetrators or victims. We could mention child sacrifice by the Aztecs. In 1487, they sacrificed 20,000 people in four days at the consecration of a temple in Mexico. Or widow burning, caste systems, female genital mutilation, witch hunts, ritual abuse, ethnic cleansing, suicide bombers, apartheid, and mass suicides. The list is depressingly long. Second, atheism does not get a free pass. The exterminations of a hundred million people in the last century have come in the name of so-called liberations by Soviet and Maoist atheism. Why people do evil in the name of religion, why we talk about love but torture and annihilate, might seem inexplicable. After studying the Crusades all his life, Tyreman concludes that it's an irreconcilable paradox, while medieval crusaders who followed the Prince of Peace endured unimaginable personal risk and privation in order to slaughter fellow human beings. Or for another take, in his book, The Most Dangerous Animal, David Livingstone Smith argues that violence is more a function of biology than religion. He says that war is deeply embedded in human nature, that it's innate, it's our natural impulse. As such, he considers war not a pathology or an aberrant choice, but a normal feature of human life. None of these explanations mean that we should ignore, excuse, or rationalize religious violence. Far from it. We should not remain silent when we see religious fraud. We should name it for what it is. We can all learn and reflect upon some of the signs that religion has become evil and that evil has become religious. Across the years, I've developed a list of 10 warning signs. Number one, fanatical claims of absolute truth. I don't mean here the belief in absolute truths, which I think is both tenable and admirable, but rather I mean the doubt-free, uncritical confidence that one has understood absolute truth Absolutely. Number two, identifying the gospel with nationalistic ideologies, partisan politics, 
state-powered and ethnic identity. Number three, blind obedience to totalitarian, charismatic, and authoritarian leaders, personality cults, or views that undermine moral integrity, personal freedom, individual responsibility, and intellectual inquiry. Number four, ushering in the so-called end times in the name of your religion. For a very painful illustration of these first four points, watch the film Jesus Camp. Number five, justifying religious ends by dubious means. Number six, any and all form of dehumanization, from openly declaring war on your enemy, demonizing those who differ from you, construing your neighbor as an other, to claiming that God is on your side. For example, do you believe that God loves Iraq and North Korea as much as America? There shouldn't be the slightest hesitation or qualification in your answer. He does. Number six, pressure tactics of coercion, deception, and false advertisement. Number seven, alienation, isolation, and withdrawal from family, friends, and society whether psychologically or literally. Number nine, exploitation in all forms of unreasonable demands upon your time, money, resources, family, friendships, and sexuality. And number 10, oddball sectarian interpretations of scripture that have little or no support from the broad classical Christian tradition, or that disregard the best of historical critical scholarship. In sum, oftentimes these danger signs combine and overlap. I recently read two disturbing memoirs about damage done in the name of religion. In his book, An American Gospel, on family, history, and the kingdom of God, Eric Ries describes the compulsory fundamentalist faith that he inherited from his grandfather and father, both of whom were Baptist preachers. His father's suicide at the age of 33 had medical roots, he admits, but it was badly aggravated by the acute self-loathing life-negating principles, oppressive faith, and repressive morality of his fundamentalist heritage. When Reese himself experienced something like a nervous breakdown at the age of 33, he headed for a Buddhist monastery to purge himself of the demons of his family faith. Veronica Chater's memoir, Waiting for the Apocalypse, a memoir of faith and family, centers, centers around her father, Lyle Arnold, 
<coughs> for whom the modernizations of Vatican II were not fresh winds of chains, change, but what she calls the smoke of Satan. Arnold spent his entire adult life in a self-styled counter-revolutionary movement to return Catholicism to what he considered its original purity. All his honorable intentions, dictatorial faith, religious earnestness, and sheer stupidity all backfired. Only one of his 11 children remains a practicing Catholic. Otherwise, the entire family paid a steep price in bitterness, resentments, banishments, drugs, teenage sex, and high school dropouts. In the last pages of her memoir, the Arnold family of 15 is living in a dilapidated three-bedroom, one-bathroom house. Hell had descended to earth in Arnold's kamikaze quest for heaven. And so the words of Jesus, don't be deceived or duped. Be on your guard against the many false faiths that masquerade is true religion. And for further reflection, what experiences have you had with the 10 warning signs above? Can you think of contemporary examples of each of the 10 warning signs? And for further reflection, I recommend two books. First, Mark Jurgensmeyer, Terror in the Mind of God, The Global Rise of Religious Violence. His book includes separate chapters on violence by Christians, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and Buddhists. And secondly, the book by Charles Kimball. The title is called, When Religion Becomes Evil. For books this week, I review the memoir I just mentioned. The author is Veronica Chater. The title, Waiting for the Apocalypse, a memoir of faith and family. New York, W.W. W. Norton, 2009, 330 pages. For Lyle Arnold, the modernizations of Vatican II were not fresh winds of change but the smoke of Satan, the biggest sin against God, the true church, and humanity since the crucifixion itself. Arnold is a former Marine of fanatical faith who is, quite literally, waiting for the so-called holy chastisement that was revealed in the Marian apparitions to the three children of Fatima, Portugal, way back in 1917. He has spent his adult life in a self-styled counter-revolution movement to return the Catholic Church to its original purity. Veronica Chater's memoir about her father's faith begins funny enough. It's an incredibly bizarre story told at first from her perspective as a 10-year-old. Her father quit his job, sold all the family possessions, and moved his family to Fatima, Portugal, to live among what he considered true Catholics. But it only took a few months before they were penniless, 
and discovered that the Portuguese, in fact, were quite happy with Vatican II. Once back in California, the kids enrolled in a tiny sectarian school that required a 100-mile round trip every day. The father, Arnold, bounced back and forth among menial jobs. He organized his own Latin mass in a department store, then moved it to a trucking garage, and finally into his own living room. Brothers were sent packing to extremist boarding schools to prepare for the end. He traveled to Brazil to connect with fellow counter-revolutionaries and import the fight back in America. Somewhere in Chater's narrative, an ominous sense creeps in, as if we're watching a horrible accident materialize in slow motion. The apocalypse does come, and with a predictable vengeance. The whole family pays a steep price in bitterness, resentments, banishment, drugs, teenage sex, and high school dropouts. In the last pages, the Arnold family of 15 people are living in a dilapidated three-bedroom, one-bathroom house. The wife, Marty, 11 children, an aunt, and a grandchild born to their teenage daughter. His honorable intentions, dictatorial faith, religious earnestness, and sheer stupidity had all backfired. Only one of the 11 children remains a practicing Catholic. The most remarkable thing about Chater's memoir is her magnanimous tone. She writes as a dutiful daughter who was generous enough in her acknowledgments at the end of the book to write that, quote, I do not wish to leave readers with the impression that my family's story is a tragedy. She then thanks her father, quote, with all my heart, and you know that she means it. She also tells the truth, especially about her heroic and devoted mother who died as she worked on this book. This is a story of how deep love can inflict horrible damage, but nevertheless told with wit, wisdom, and even a hint of whimsy. Veronica Chater, Waiting for the Apocalypse. For film this week, I review a movie from the country of Uruguay. The title is called The Pope's Toilet, from the year 2008. We're told at the beginning of this film that, quote, the events of this story are in essence true. Back in 1988, Pope John Paul II visited the tiny Uruguayan village of Melo on the border of Brazil. <clears throat> Rumor had it that as many as 200,000 worshipers would flood the village, and so the peasants sensed an enormous economic opportunity to escape their grinding poverty. The film focuses on Juan Beto, a smuggler who rides his rickety bike 30 miles back and forth into Brazil to deliver goods back in Melo. He's a loving father and husband who has trouble with the bottle, 
but he's always got his thinking cap on, as he tells his wife, Carmen. Beto builds an outhouse with plans to charge the throngs of visitors. But like so many poor people of the world, caught between forces they can't control and promises that aren't kept, things turn out differently. God will help us, Beto assures Carmen. If he doesn't help the poor, then who does he help? That, my friends, is a good question. This film is in Spanish with English subtitles. Once again, the title, The Pope's Toilet. And finally this week, we've posted a short but very powerful poem by Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson lived from 1830 to 1886. The title of the poem, Tell It Slant. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success and circuit lies. Too bright for minds, infirm intent, the truth's suburb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually on ev or every man be blind. Emily Dickinson, Tell It Slant. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 15th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.